welcome to Aryan Insights. Today's date is the Monday, the 18th of December, 2017. You're listening to me, Sven Longshanks, and we haven't had one of these programs for quite a while. And this is one I've been particularly looking forward to. And the reason why we haven't had one for quite a while is because it's hard to get hold of the guests that I, that I want to have appear on this show. I do want to have quality guests and I've got a, a guest of a particularly high quality today. And it's, it's a, going to be a program that I really wished Red Ice would have made. And I know that lots of people have spoken to Red Ice and they've asked to have my guest on that I've got today. And unfortunately, they never actually put him on, which is, which is a shame because they've covered just about every other alternative theory that there is on the internet. And with all these things, when you, when you see that something that needs doing and other people aren't doing it, then it falls to you that it's you that has to do it. And I'm quite happy to be doing this. Um, it's a subject that I'm particularly interested in as well, which is Christian identity. And Christian identity is basically it's a school of thought. And I would consider myself to be a Christian identity student. And I would consider my guest today to be a Christian identity scholar, probably the world's foremost Christian identity scholar. And I'm talking about Mr. William Fink from Christoginia.org. Bill, how are you doing today? Hello, Sven, and thank you for having me. That That's um, humbling. I appreciate it. And I'll do my best to live up to it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you will. And, and, you know, I, you don't, I don't think people say it enough and thank you enough for the work that you do. I mean, the site that you have is absolutely massive. You've got so many podcasts on there, so much information, so many links to books. You've got all your side projects that you do. And, and I know that you do a lot of work that other people aren't aware of. And I know personally that any of them, any of your students, if they're ever in trouble at all, they can contact you and you will help them out. And I, I, I know recently you just traveled halfway across the country to uh, fetch a, a Christian identity friend and, and bring him back so that he could, he could look after him at yours and an elderly Christian identity scholar. And I mean, that's, you know, that's a really noble thing to do. And I really commend you for that. So anyway, that's that's another subject. And um, maybe we'll get on to some of the people that you look up to and some of the earlier scholars as we get into the program. Well, I guess, first off, what we should do is, if it's possible, if you could sum up what Christian identity is um, in a few sentences, I guess, or phrases, because we could go on for a whole podcast talking about what Christian identity is. So how would you how would you describe Christian identity to someone who hadn't heard it before? And if you were trying to um, trying to make it fairly brief. Well, well, first, Christian identity is, to me, an honest scholarly endeavor to identify the ancient peoples mentioned in the Bible, in our scriptures, with modern peoples in the world today. And that is um, an endeavor which, which can very successfully be undertaken in a study of ancient the classical histories and the other ancient writings, the, the um, Mesopotamian inscriptions, and, and other ancient sources, archaeological sources. So that's the endeavor of Christian identity. Now, once you get beyond the mere scientific historical investigation, 
and into the realm of what, for lack of a better term, I will call religion, you understand from our scripture that the God of our race, a conclusion you come from that first part of Christian identity, the God of our race has made covenants and promises to us and expects us in turn to follow a certain pattern of behavior. When we follow that pattern of behavior, we are generally blessed. And when we refuse to follow that pattern of behavior, we are generally chastised. But whether we are blessed or we are chastised, those covenants which God made with our race stand. And sooner or later, we will have to come to terms with the fact that we will never be blessed unless we live up to those covenants. I think that's the point that um, even even Christians of other faiths tend to miss, is that whatever God says in the Bible, that's truth, and that stands for all time. If Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, he is the truth, he is the same as the Father. So when God speaks in the Old Testament, when he makes these laws, when he makes these commandments and the covenants that you're talking about, they don't change. That that's it for all time. And anything else has to be has to be looked at through through that lens. And I think that's something that um a lot of people miss and Christian identity takes very, very seriously. And it's what the whole it's what the whole Bible should be based on, I think. Um when did you first hear of Christian identity then, Bill, and, and how long ago was that? Well, first, let me say that early Christian identity was spread amongst the purveyors that that the um, the Christian right and the purveyors of early historical revision, historical revisionism materials and um, other materials of, of the radical opposition, let me call it, to the, the Judaic world empire, which is what we live under today. Well, when I was um, on the on, on the internet in the early days of the internet, 90, 1993, I was on the internet. That's when it was first made public. But I was in, in on the internet for technical reasons. I was a computer programmer. Well, in the early days of the internet, before I um, ended up in prison, and and that's another long story, but we'll try to make that short a little later on if you desire. Well, while I was I was looking at things on the internet and and came across some conspiratorial history sites and found a great interest in that. I had always had an interest in history. And when I ended up in prison, I almost immediately, I mean, within a week, met this gentleman that had a lot of conspiratorial history books, and I started reading them. And after a year, I was transferred to another prison where I met a a young man that was involved in something called Christian identity, and he had um, handed me a pile of books, and it was 1997, it was the the it was probably October 1997. I'm sure it was. And um, I took this pile of books and he asked me to read them and I read them and and they were all traditional 
Christian identity books, um, Frederick Haberman, Bertrand Compare, E. Raymond Capt. And I read these books and, and I was fascinated by them. But I wasn't immediately taken in. And after many conversations with him and a couple of other identity Christians I met in prison, I decided to put these books aside and to read the things that these men had read to see if Christian identity is true. So from there, I embarked on what became an 11-year study while I was in prison. And of course, now it's been 10, 9, 9 more years, and, and I'm still involved in those studies. I've been totally engrossed in them for 20 years because the more I studied and, and read the classics and books of inscriptions and, and archaeology, I realized that Christian identity was absolutely true. Were you a, a nationalist before that? Did you have nationalist sympathies before then? Or did, did that come about through studying the Christian identity literature as well? Well, I wasn't a nationalist in, in the terms that we think. Uh, I was raised a normie, right? I was raised a normie. Well, well I was raised a little um, Anglo-Irish Catholic boy in Jersey City, New Jersey. But... I was, I believe I was always a racist, not because I wanted to be a racist, but because of my early experiences with other races. In 1960, 1967, I believe it was, it, it may have been, I might be off a year. I think it was 1967. There were riots across the country. There were Ferguson's and Baltimore's in um, Watson, California, and, and in Jersey City, and in other places in the country, the, the, the Negroes were chimping out then. And I experienced that. I watched that. And, and that was my awakening to the fact that these black people were different. For the rest of my life, I, I mean, growing up as a child, black people were anathema to me. They were nothing but trouble. We fought with with black people all the time, with black kids all the time. My house was burglarized three times before I was 14, every time by blacks. And each time we were awoken and ran them out. But still, I mean, they, they lived six blocks away on the other side of town. And they would come into the white neighborhoods and look. our house looked easy to break into, I guess. It, it was an old house, right? And... These experiences, not only with blacks, but with Hispanics and, and Indians and other races throughout my early formative years had, had led me to realize that there were definite differences between the races and definite um, diverging interests between the races. I understood that these other races really didn't care about me. They were only out for what they wanted, for what they could get for themselves to perpetuate their own kind. So racism grew up with me because I grew up in one of the cities in this country that was a, a major um, part of the early multicultural experiments. Jersey City was a big city of um, in immigration as soon as they had had passed those immigration acts in in the 1960s that more or less inverted the nature of people that were allowed into this country 
Yeah, it seems a lot of the people that I speak to that, that live in the cities like New York and New Jersey tend to have first-hand experience of this with people like Dominicans and, and these other dark races that all stick together and just all cause trouble for white people. Did you have any experience with Jews be- before reading about them in the Christian identity literature? Well, well, yes, and and my grandfather used to tell stories about Jews, and he hated them. And my father used to tell stories about Jews, and he hated them. My, my father was a um, was in the street shining shoes when he was seven or eight years old to help his family survive the Depression, right, and and the, the World War Two era, and a lot of his customers were these Jewish shop owners. And my father used to tell me stories about how the Jewish shop owners would go out on, close their shops early on Fridays and go off with black prostitutes. And uh, he told me all these tales when I was young and, and he absolutely despised them. So, so that being said, in my adult career, I had a lot of experience with Jews. And, and came to understand that Jews were indeed purely evil from those experiences. They're purely materialistic, wicked people that will do anything to, to stick a knife in your back and, and take everything you have. They just do it through legalistic means or, or through business, shady business dealings and any, any way they, any way that they can. Sounds like your grandfather was, was really good. He must have been a really good man to communicate important information like that to his grandson. Which um, Well, my grandfather was a proud Christian German who had been embarrassed to be a German. If you grew up German in, in New York or New Jersey during the First World War, which he did, your Germanness was basically either beat out of you or embarrassed out of you. So my grandmother, I, I have, um, there were tapes in my family of my great grandmother singing German hymns and, and her, um, her two children, one being my grandfather, of course, um, playing music, accompanying that and, and singing along with them. My, my grandfather spoke fluent German, but you wouldn't know it because he wouldn't speak it later in life. He didn't want to be, yet you were demonized at, you, you were a hun, right? You, you were a, a wicked barbarian if you were German in, in certain areas of the United States. Now, now it probably wasn't so bad in the Midwest with the majority, where there was a bigger German majority and, and less Anglo-Irish. And, but in New Jersey, what, where the Germans were the minority and, and, and the Anglo-Irish the majority. It, it wasn't popular to be German after, during and after the First World War when my grandfather was young. That's a complete opposite of the narrative we get, isn't it? It's the, the Jews that are supposed to be frightened to uh, say that they're Jews. And in actual fact, it's Germans that had to hide their ethnicity. Um, I, I guess he must have really treasured the time that he was able to spend with his family and be openly German and speak the truth to you. Yeah, that's, um, you know, a very lucky man to have a grandfather like that, I think, Bill. Do you have any literary do you, or philosophical interests? 
before studying Christian identity or did that sort of come about while you had um, the time to look into these things? Were, were you interested in, in books at all before um, before discovering it? Well, when I was a child, I was very interested in history and especially World War II history. And I'm not going to say that I was a Nazi. I certainly wasn't. But I had sympathies towards being German, having that, having that consciousness, even though I'm only one fourth German, let me qualify that, but having that consciousness that I had German blood as well as English and Irish blood. My mother is almost all English with, with some Scottish and my father is half Irish. His mother was Irish. Well, well, having that consciousness of having German blood, When I read mainstream histories as a child, I, I think I tried to read them more objectively. But by the time I was in my late teens, I had put all that away and stopped reading material like that because I just got busy with life, right? And and life, the, the academic life at that time was not mine, right? I quit school after 10th grade and I, I was loading trucks and working in factories until I was in my um, early 20s and went into law enforcement, I think, at age 21 and ended up in prison at age 36. I had a um, career in, in in data processing and information management in, with computers, but I was self-taught, so I never went back to school after 10th grade. It's funny. I think um, sometimes it's the things that you do when you're a child or when you're very young, you, you put them away when you're young. And then when you get older, you, you sort of return back to them. It, it's similar to the inherited characteristics, I think, that we have in, a, in our genes. And say so that the older you get, the less it's um, the environment that affects you and the more you become like your parents and, and the more these biological genes come out in you, the her- heritable genes come out in you. I would dare say that um, the time you spent with your grandfather and the and, and the, how he instilled in you the fact that you were part German that, that came out in your in your older life it, as you as it was a huge part of your formative years. I would say. Right, I was separated from my grandfather when I was very young, but he did leave that impression on me of, of our Germanness and and of how the Jews were different. And, and my father certainly helped with that also that they were only impressions. There was no real great detail there that they were both common, common laborers that they weren't academic men at all. Um, I don't think my, my grandfather read a lot of pulp novels and, and things like that. I don't think he ever read anything really, really deep, like especially something like Mein Kampf, right? But um, it, it's the, the literary interest I had as a child definitely returned to me as an adult, but really only because of the circumstances that I was in and, and the, the, the need to do this study as an endeavor in, in order to find out what was really true about what had happened to me and what was going on with me in the world around me. Well, my, my next question 
is we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Can you name some of the giants who gave you a hand up? And, you know, it, it, you've already just named your, your father and your grandfather. But I was mainly meaning Christian identity um, teachers with this question. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And, and who are the, can you name some of the giants who helped you get to where you are today? I don't. Because I was isolated, I think that my, my major influences, what were just dead men that wrote a lot of books, um, I loved George Rawlinson, his histories, his translation of Herodotus, his notes, things like that. I, I think that had an influence on me and, and other, 19th century authors and, and scholars had a profound influence on me, but, but living people and Christian identity writers, I mean, I liked E. Raymond Catt, but I think he could have done better in some areas. I, I liked Swift and Compare and, and, and Howard Rand and some of the early writers that identity writers that I was, um, that, that I was versed, that I became versed in through their writings. And, and I think they all had their high points and, and they all had their areas where they excelled, but some of them were either, um, historians and others were, what were churchy, churchmen. And, and Swift was into a lot of fantastic mythology and Kabbalism and, and, and treading on waters that I don't believe Christians should even tread. So it, it's, you really have to sort through and sift through a lot of, um, distraction in, in order to find the gems of truth that you could put together in, into a, a fluid paradigm, a, a Weltanschauung that's consistent with both the Bible and history and, and your experience in the world. So it, it's, there's a lot of men that, that helped influence me in small ways. I don't think there are any who influenced me in major ways, except for Clifton Emmerheiser. Clifton Emmerheiser and I began correspondence in a dispute that I had with a few things that he wrote. And Clifton was a big influence on me, not because um, he was my teacher, because I don't believe that he was. We learned from everybody we would deal with, and I learned a great deal from Clifton. But that was a two-way street, and, and we had much correspondence on many biblical topics as I got into these Christian identity studies and was introduced to Clifton. So, so we had actually come to a lot of conclusions with each other, with one another during our many correspondences, which spanned 11 years, we came to a lot of conclusions with, which were outside of traditional Christian identity understanding and which I believe were a great improvement because we actually took all of these issues and studied them in great depth in, in great depth 
that they were a great improvement on Christian identity, on traditional Christian identity. And Clifton Emmerheiser is who you're currently caring for that I mentioned at the at the beginning of the at the beginning of the show. I'll just say that E. Raymond Capt, I'm particularly fond of of his work myself, and um, I found he was a, a big a big help alongside listening to your podcasts because I think this is the same for most people that discover Christian identity. They they want to find some literary work that they can that they can check and, and read at their own pace and, and check the references out. And I found E. Raymond Cap to be very good, but he doesn't go far enough. He really doesn't right. go far enough. That, that's, that's my only criticism of him. And, and you went even further. Uh, you translated the New Testament itself from the original Greek, from the oldest Greek scriptures into modern English while you were in prison. So could you talk a little bit about that, how you went about doing it, what inspired you to do it? Any problems you encountered and, and any particular insights that you gained from doing that? Well, well, absolutely. I, I had a friend in prison in 1998 and 99 for about two years. His name was Ralph Daigle and Ralph was also, Ralph is the, the, the gentleman who introduced Clifton Emheiser to me. When Clifton Emmerheiser was at the very beginning of his ministry, which he began in May of 1998. So I started reading Clifton Emmerheiser from the very beginning. And, and within two years, I, I became one of his, one of his proofreaders and our relationship developed from there. Well, well, Ralph Daigle is a good friend, but we've parted ways because he falls into the category of Paul Basher. And Ralph had always complained about the many mistranslations found in scripture. And there are thousands of mistranslations of poor translations in our King James version of the Bible. Most of those bad translations result from a poor understanding of ancient history by the translators coupled with a refusal or a failure to see the actual racial nature of scripture and the role of race in scripture. We have to understand that these medieval Englishmen and even medieval Germans like Martin Luther, they thought that they were aliens included into the covenants of God. And there's a deeper reason for that, which I hope we get to later. But they didn't understand that they were of the people of the covenants with God. So there are passages in scripture which are clearly um, racial in nature and exclusive in nature that they just can't translate properly or their entire church doctrine and the paradigm that these men have set up for themselves disintegrates. So Ralph would complain about all these mistranslations in scripture, but then because Paul is so badly used by universalists, the writings of Paul of Tarsus, Ralph would accept the mistranslations that are in Paul of Tarsus, and he would blame them on Paul rather than on the translators. So he's following the work of, of a lot of other racist Christians who were, or nationalist Christians who were Paul bashers before him. 
And that was a point of contention between Ralph and I, which I decided to actually study Greek in order to see what Paul of Tarsus was really saying. So when I began translating the Bible, it was only as an investigation of Paul of Tarsus, which turned into a defense of Paul of Tarsus because due to the nature of Paul's writings, he is the most mistranslated writer of scripture. The translations of his letters are in many places disgraceful and absolutely contrary to what the Greek actually says. I know you've done a, a very long series called Against the Paul Bashers. I guess um, some of that would have come from your notes while you were while you were researching this and and translating the uh, New Testament. Yeah, my my twenty eight part or thirty part series or whatever it is against the Paul Bashers is mostly impromptu remarks and banter and. And, and response to charges against Paul. And a lot of it does come from my translation notes. But what's probably a lot more important is my 120, or maybe it'll be 121. I'm almost completed with it. My 120 podcast series of commentaries on Paul's epistles, what, which I'm, um, about to conclude now, I have one or two segments left of Second Timothy, and it's and and it's done. Did you have any problems with getting hold of the the ancient Greek versions of it while you were in prison? Well, well, I was in total isolation, so I really didn't um, even know much. I was I was in a general prison population, but that alone is isolation from the academic world. Right. The prison library is full of um, pulp novels and a couple of sets of encyclopedias, which are virtually worthless. And especially where ancient history is concerned and, and truth about history and and the local library that I could borrow books from never had any of the titles that I wanted. It, it was a struggle for me coming into this in 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 that environment with little resources to find what I should read. And that took several months just to find out what I should read and and writing my, my family at home to send me books and, and to research what titles were available on the internet from what I wanted to read. So so it's you start off with the starting point and, and it really took a couple of years to develop a solid um, foundation of sources for Greek study, for Bible study, and, and all of that. You had to um, teach yourself Greek as well, ancient Cohen Greek. How, how did you go about um, doing that? Well, I only went to school for 10 years, but in my last two years of high school, I did take a year of Latin and two years of Spanish, which were compulsory and, and understood the parts of grammar and all of those things. And I got myself a Greek grammar handbook and an interlinear Bible and began to study with those. 
and moved on from a Strong's Concordance to a Liddell and Scott lexicon once I realized that Liddell and Scott was the standard for translation of the classics for, for probably a hundred years or, or close to it in, in the academic world. So that's what I wanted. I wanted to learn um, Coin Greek and to be able to, to understand the words of the writers of the New Testament from the colloquial secular understanding of what these words meant, right? Because that's the important understanding. The biblical lexicons and dictionaries have a lot of definitions in them which are church definitions. They're definitions which were put in there because it's assumed that the way the church uses the terms is the correct way for them to be understood. And, and that's simply not true. That's the biggest mistake that Bible translators make is that a word has some kind of different meaning just because it's in the Bible, which is not the meaning that the word had in, in its secular Greek usage. So that's my, my approach at translation. So the, the other books that are around at the time that are written in Greek, a lot of the words have a completely different meaning to them than when they're translated in the New Testament. So they pretty much came up with a, a new version of Greek when they translated the New Testament. Would that be a, a correct way to describe it? Well, well, they didn't come up with a new version of Greek, but they did poorly translate many words in order to uphold their church doctrines. And those translations have made it into the lexicons. It's sort of backwards. The lexicon should be based upon what we know from secular Greek writing. And, and that's what a lexicon like Liddell and Scott does. It, it takes the words as they were used by the Greek writers and defines them at, as to how they appear in Homer or Herodotus or, or Plato or, or Aristotle or Strabo or, or any of the secular Greek writers. So then you can, you can check these things out for yourself, check the translations for yourself. When I, when I first come across, um, your work, the first thing I bought was a Strong's Concordance. So I could look these words up for myself and, and check them. I don't have a Liddell's and Scott, and that's obviously the one that you move on to from the Concordance. But I would, um, advise anyone listening to this that's interested in this sort of stuff to get themselves a Strong's Concordance and, and check the words out for themselves and see these different meanings. Because there's right. a lot of them, and a lot of them are racial. Strong's is a starting point, but Strong's is very concise. The dictionaries are extremely concise. You you might have three lines in Strong's for a word where you have half a page in Liddell and Scott, half a big page of very small print. So you you have to be wary with the Strong's. He just tried to give a general sense of the meaning of terms in a very concise manner. Yeah, they, they don't cost that much money either. I think they're a very good value for money, the um, the one that I bought was. Well, we've talked a bit about um, about what you were doing while you were in prison, and I, I don't want to um, pry too much, Bill, but I do know that um, listeners would be interested to know how you ended up in there and for, for such a long time, if, if it's not too difficult to talk about. No, it's not. I, I was in law enforcement, 
I found I I had an, a high school equivalency degree, which got me qualified for a job in law enforcement. I was in corrections in um I could have been a Jersey City cop, but by then I was making too much money to take the pay cut. I was in corrections in in my county, and there was some trouble with a prisoner one night, and and whatever happened happened. I, I'm not going to go into the gory details. But four people were charged, and I wasn't. I wasn't initially charged. I was charged later. And um, the state case was dismissed. We beat the state case. They they didn't really have a case. And I was as soon as I beat the state case, I was um, I was indicted in federal court. The four of us were. Well, five, there were five of us, but. Four of us were indicted in federal court, and there was one testifying against us. They rolled him over, and and he basically made up a story. He made up a story. He made up a story on, and and I believe he made it up for the sake of the state authorities and carried it over into the federal courts. And my charges were dismissed at the state level when he was totally discredited, but the federal courts wouldn't have. Even that is evidence against us. To make a long story short, eventually I was convicted of involuntary manslaughter. I was never convicted of the things that the, – the lies that the New York Times likes to repeat that, that it has in its articles. I was never convicted of those things. I never pled guilty to murder or, or to anything other than my involuntary manslaughter conviction. I never admitted to anything. Well, one of my co-defendants was um, tried and convicted of murder, second-degree murder. I had nothing to do with that trial. I wasn't called as a witness. Um, I, I, I was totally uninvolved in all of those proceedings. <laughs> I was um, home on bond and working to support myself and my kids. I had six kids, six white kids. And there's a quirk in the federal law here. And the quirk lasted from the early 90s until it was overturned. In the Rehnquist court, it began that a judge, a federal judge can find you guilty of charges other than what you were convicted of if he can describe what's called relevant conduct. Now, now this is totally contrary to constitution to, to the constitutional rights that Americans are supposed to have. But I was not convicted of murder, but I was sentenced to a penalty for second degree murder because the judge thought that there was relevant conduct, conduct that I could never give testimony in relation to, conduct that I could never deny because I wasn't involved in my co-defendant's trial. Now, that decision was overturned in 2006 with something called the Booker decision, where courts could not sentence you beyond what you were actually convicted of. But my case was turned down by the courts, and all my appeals were turned down, probably because of the nature of the case. I'm a white cop who's convicted of a civil rights case. There ain't no way I'm ever going to get my day in court. There's simply no way. 
because it's not politically correct to recognize the Constitution in my case. So I, I appealed and appealed and appealed and lost. And, and this Negro drug dealer named Booker had the same circumstances I had with a different type of charge. And he appealed and he won and overturned this relevant conduct idea that the Rehnquist court had introduced in, in the nineties. So that, that was it. I did, um, 14 years for something I was never convicted of where the maximum penalty for what I was convicted of would have been about 21 months. That's shocking. That's really shocking. That, that, that's, that, that's exactly what happened. Well, I think it's, I think it's good to, um, good to state that so people, everyone can hear that and and know what, uh, what really happened. When you came out, from the prison after, I mean, you spent 14 years in there and I, mean, I would, just before we move into the next question, I would say God moves in mysterious ways and you had all I that time. Spent, I'm sorry. I actually spent, I was sentenced to 14 years. I actually spent 12 years and three months and, and that's because of the good time thing and, 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 um, relief that all prisoners are afforded, right? That that's common. You you never do the full amount of time. You do the federal law says that you have to do eighty five percent of it. I mean, that's, at least you you were able to put the time that you were in there to good use. I, mean, I dare say you wouldn't have been able to spend all that time translating the New Testament because you've got your own translation of the New Testament, Christogenia New Testament. Um, and to, to have the time of not being disturbed, it's not very nice. You're in, you're in prison, but you had that time where you could do all this, all this studying and produce everything that you have for us. It, it's the, the, the only other alternative would be to sit and watch television or, or to play cards with Negroes, but which is definitely contrary to my nature. <laughs> I worked out and I ran and, and, and did things to keep myself healthy and strong. But I spent most of my time studying. Well, I'm, I for one am very glad you spent that time studying while you were in there. I'm not glad you were in there, but I'm glad you spent that time studying. And when you came out, you were surprised to find that many people who claim to be Christian identists or Christian identity students were soft on the race question. Could you explain what is, what is meant by that and, and the surprise that you, that you had to discover that? Well, even from a secular perspective, a historical secular perspective, if you accept the other races as people like yourself, that is egalitarianism. And that is destructive and detrimental to the interests of your race. This is only common sense. I was isolated in prison with the smallest of correspondence and, and all of my correspondence felt the way I did on the race issue. Now, some of those correspondents were in other prisons and, and most of them were people who had been associated with Christian identity for a very long time. Um, Wesley Swift's wife was one of my correspondents, Lorraine Swift. 
and other people who were familiar with Compare, who knew E. Raymond Cap personally. I, I, I have a lot of people in my, um, among my listeners who knew E. Raymond Cap and William Gale and Bertrand Compare personally. And, and they're among my friends today. Well, well, these people seem to have always felt the way I have on the race issue. Even though I haven't interrogated each and every one of them, I never remember any dispute with them. But there's a sector of Christian identity, which is larger, which is um, derived from British Israel and to a much greater degree have, has stayed there. And, and the Herbert W. Armstrong camp and places like that, Arnold Murray, and, and they accept the other races. I, I was flabbergasted that people could be calling themselves Christian identity and, and still be accepting of what I saw historically as Jewish Masonic egalitarianism. But because that's evil. It, it should be anathema to any true student of scripture. I'm amazed. So I was shocked by that. I really was shocked at the number of people who claimed to be Christian identity and accepted egalitarianism in one degree or another. I'm amazed that um, British Israel has stayed where it has and, and hasn't progressed at all because there's there's been a lot more research done since British Israel's heyday and they've just stayed where they are, except accepting the Jews, accepting that they are Judah and missing out on on all the research that's been done since then and there's also the issue of of people trying to bring the other races into it and I, I know some people may find it harsh when you say there that these other races aren't people but even when you look at the different white nations some of them were so vehemently opposed to the other nations around them that they they didn't think of them as people and they would invade one another they had a very, very strong sense of of ethnic nationalism in the past, a few thousand years back. And they certainly would never have looked at Negroes as as people. I mean, it's certainly not. I mean, when you, that, that Strabo um, wrote about the Negroes in Ethiopia, and he makes it quite clear that uh, they're not nothing like the civilized Greeks. And this this is secular. Not, um, not Christian. And when you look at Christianity, when you look at the Bible, I mean, that's even, even more vehemently ethno-nationalist and for one, one people only. Or have you encountered hostility from, um, other sectors of Christian identity for this? So, and have you encountered hostility for continuing the work that, uh, these earlier Christian identity pioneers began? Well, well, first, first let me say that it was Diodorus Siculus who wrote at length about the Negroes of Ethiopia, I'm sorry, and, and did consider them just savage, that they were as far from humanity as possible. And, and that's Diodorus Siculus who wrote in the first century BC. And, and that's the, the Greek estimation of the Negro race. That, that they're just, um, savage beasts. They would never think of humanizing them. Um, I think in our work we've done together in the past, I, I've elucidated and, and I believe I think I first brought this out in my pragmatic genesis series that in ancient Egypt, 
non-Egyptians in general, no matter what race they were, were not considered people. And, and that's to the advancement of, uh, and the preservation of the Egyptian race. And that was the old kingdom mentality. By the middle kingdom, they, they were writing poetry, which I've elucidated in, in my work, that, that insisted that, um, their God had made all colors of men. And, and we can see the transformation in this old Egyptian writing from a, um, unicultural society, a monolithic society, which only accepted Egyptians as men, to a universal multicultural society where God created everybody. And, and just with that, we should see what happens to an, a great empire which accepts the multicultural ideas. It immediately goes downhill like ancient Egypt did. So it, it's, um, what we believe about the Bible is not novel. We've seen the same mistakes repeated in ancient history that are happening today. You know, Martin Luther, and, and he's highly misunderstood also, Martin Luther had proclaimed in his um, writing on the Jews and their lies that the whole world had already accepted the gospel of Christ. Now, that same Martin Luther often wrote about the Islamic Turks and 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 other races that he was cognizant of. So if he says that the whole world had already accepted the gospel of Christ, then I'm certain that by his term of the word world, he meant only the European world. Now, you might find somewhere else in Luther's writings that conflicts with that idea, and I wouldn't doubt it, because Martin Luther himself had some very poor influences, and, and I could just, we could discuss them later, but, but, um, Luther was basically not sure on a race issue or, or in conflict with himself on a race issue because of, of the, um, unclear positions on race that were introduced to Christianity a long, long time ago but which were not a part of apostolic and original Christianity. So scholars have been confused for all this time on a race issue that I do not believe the apostles were confused on. However, in Christian identity, all of this confusion was brought into Christian identity and early identity writers attempted to find the creation or the place for other races in scripture simply because these other races exist and because the viewpoint of scripture that that it it's the book for the whole planet has always been ingrained in us and and nothing's further from the truth so they they concoct this to Adam's theory, or they try to describe these other races as the beasts of the field, and, and it's all ridiculous. None of that can be proven once the, once it's looked at in a scholarly manner. That they're all ridiculous suppositions or, or presumptions 
based on this idea that somehow we have to accept these other races as people when we certainly don't. They're not people. I think our, our concept of the world today is very, very different to what the concept was years ago. Uh, is it the habitable earth or the civilized world? I, I know you've shown in your work that even when it, things like cosmos are tran- translated in the New Testament, that was just talking about a specific part of the white civilized world. Well, what right. would you say? Cosmos, the order, the order or the society. Yeah, not I'm the sorry. universe. That's all right. That's all right. Um, well, what would you say is the biggest obstacle that people have without, without accepting Christian identity? Thinking that the other races are included anywhere in the Bible naturally leads to universalism. In truth, I can prove that they're not included, but that, that, that's hard to get out of people. This incorrect view of history that has been programmed into people, the social pressure against accepting something so different to justify their racism, that's a charge that I often face that my view of the Bible comes as a justification of my racism. And and that's certainly not true. Because when when I was in prison studying the Bible, if I found it to be a universalist book, it would have been contrary to my spirit and I would have rejected the Bible. I found the Bible to be a very racist book. And not only that, but through my historical study, I found that it was the book for my race, which makes me what I am today. I'm not trying to justify my racism. I could have taken Mein Kampf and done that. I could have taken a hundred other tomes and, and done that. I don't need a book to justify my racism. What I need to do is properly understand the history of my people. But that goes against the the, the world. The Bible and history do not matter to most people today as much as their comfort and their popularity. I think it was Henry VIII that Shakespeare attributed as saying that he would give, it might have been Henry I or II, that he would give all his fame for a pot of ale and safety. And that is the same attitude we see in most people today, that they would relinquish even their heritage for a six-pack and an armchair it's hard to bring people to christian identity well we're a stiff-necked people people refuse to bend the knee and even when it's there in black and white in the bible that that they're supposed to be racist they, they still ignore it and think that they they know better and somehow god has to change to accept them rather than them changing their ideas to do the right thing as far as God is concerned, and some well, people, I, I say, um, uh, so, go on. I, I was just going to say, I encounter hostility all the time for for what I do. I encounter hostility from Christian identity people for um for for improving and 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 detailing in in academic as academic as academic as I could write in academic papers that are very well cited detailing my reasons for my improvements on Compare and on and on Swift and on the other early identity writers i get much hostility for that it's incredible that the, the to take a firm uncompromising position on the race issue 
makes even many longtime identity Christians uncomfortable because they, they love the world and they can't live up to the ideals. They don't want to offend anybody. Doesn't it say in the Bible somewhere to study, to show thyself approved? Well, well, right, but I, I really believe, I'm not trying to vaunt myself, but I've been probably the most vocal and most exposed Christian identity voice on the internet for nine years now, and and with definitely the biggest audience in Christian identity by far, and that's just a fact. But I really believe that if I did not exist, many identity Christian so-called teachers and pastors would be a lot more liberal than they are now. Even those that despise me would be a lot more liberal than they are now if it were not for my work. It's, a, it's an inclination that, that men have to disobey God, I think. That's, that's, that's what it comes down to. Well, one of the main criticisms that we do here within Christian identity some people criticize the idea that all Israel, meaning all the white race, are saved. So what is meant by that? Surely it, it cannot mean that traitors to the white race receive no justice for their crimes. Well, well right. First, people, um, people neglect to understand that there are different types of salvation in the scripture. There is temporal salvation. That's your personal preservation in this life. If you obey the laws of God and the commandments of Christ, you you are um, promised a temporal salvation. But then there's eternal salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul of Tarsus instructed the Christian assembly at Corinth to put um, a sinner out from among them, a fornicator out from among them to eject him out of the assembly. And in with, with that happening, he said to turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, putting this individual out into the pagan world, he would fall into the hands of the enemy, not having to any intercourse with the Christians of Corinth. He'd fall into the hands of the pagans and, and eventually go into a life, a profligate or lascivious life, or, or be persecuted or whatever, and, and, and be destroyed in, in the world. Just like a church today would, would put out an adulterer. And, and leave him up to his own devices in, in the, in the outside world. So that concept is turning someone over to Satan, to the, to the adversaries of Christianity in the outside world. So Paul instructed this, this assembly to turn him over to Satan by casting him out of the assembly for the destruction of the flesh. He law, he would lose his promise of temporal salvation because he's a sinner so that the spirit paul says so that the spirit can be saved in the day of christ separating the idea of the temporal salvation and the eternal salvation this is probably the most controversial topic that i take a firm position on if our race was created to be immortal as the scripture states and if God cannot fail, 
as the scripture states, then all of our race must be immortal. And the scripture states that we are going to be redeemed from our covenants with death. We are going to be redeemed from hell in the grave in the pit. However, on the other hand, it clearly states that some of us face everlasting contempt. Daniel chapter 12, which Paul also describes in, in kinder terms as having no reward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, whatever that everlasting contempt is, it is nevertheless everlasting. We should have unity. The, the, the white race, the members of our race should have unity and division based on one fact only, the matter of our creation, that our white race was created for a special purpose, that it has eternal life, and that the other so-called races are merely mortal, transient beasts. And that's what the Bible teaches, and I can prove that. I already have many times. That's what uh, people are frightened to face up to i think the fact that these other races just go back into the earth and if anyone white breeds with them then that's it all the all the descendants are are done for the bio is quite right, quite clear dogs. what would you say is the strongest evidence for the veracity of christian identity the strongest evidence for no other reason than what we see in scripture in the descriptions of the so-called last days and the camp of the saints, Revelation chapter 20, um, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. It's in Joel. It's in Amos, I believe. It's in Micah. In the description of the last days and the camp of the saints and the world's what What's going on with the world's most intelligent and successful race, which is the white race, that the only race that truly builds what we should be able to call civilization? Why would the world's most successful advanced race let itself be destroyed by the satanic international Jew? By letting itself be trampled upon and infested and virtually consumed by all of the world's non-white beasts in the name of Jewish egalitarianism, because egalitarianism is Jewish. Why would that happen if the Jew is not Satan? And if the other races are not those um, pommel worms and canker worms, as Joel put it, and locusts who would consume the people of God, what the Bible predicts about the last days and the camp of the saints is exactly what's going on today. And when we properly identify this, the picture is absolutely clear. The revelation is real, and all of it can be explained in these terms, along with the many other corresponding 
end-time prophecies in the ancient Old Testament prophets. And this, I believe, I have done in a relatively academic fashion in, in Christ-like, in, in my commentary on the Revelation, and, and in probably many other places. Yeah, people can uh, buy a copy of that, Christ-like, and the information is also available online. I, I also just like to say, I mean, you, you sell books, but you also put all that information online so people can read it for free as well. You don't have to buy the book, but, you know, I would like right. to advise to people me, to do that to help you. To me, the information comes first. Everything I've ever written is free online, on my website, everything. I package it in, 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 in a couple of books. I, right now, I only have two books, but this year I hope to come out with four to six more books. I probably have material for 30 to 40 books without exaggerating. Um, I'm going to be packaging my biblical commentaries over the next year or two and, and hopefully have them all in books. I pray. Yeah, I'm particularly looking forward to that. I think the Romans one is the first one that's coming out, isn't it? Yes, but even that's all, it's all free online. It's already online. It's in podcasts. It's in writing. Well, some people try to say that Christian identity is a novelty that was introduced to justify the British Empire. So when do you think people first realized the Christian identity truth of the Bible? Well, well, medieval Christians, they believed that they were the people of God simply because they understood that they are the ones that fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. Did they have a scholarly academic um, basis for those beliefs? No. And I will explain why. When our people had migrated from Mesopotamia and the Levant into Europe and settled Europe, they basically broke off in small groups and, and tribal groups, and some of them grew into great tribes, and others didn't fare so well, of course. But along the way, they simply lost contact with their history. And when they were re-educated, for the most part, by the Romans, that education took an entirely different course. Roman Christianity was a Christianity without roots because apostolic Christianity had been persecuted out of existence. So medieval Christians simply believed that they were the people of God because they were the ones that fulfilled the prophecies, especially the prophecies concerning Christ. But we have to understand that Converso Jews had written the most popular Bible commentaries all the way back to the 14th and 13th centuries, Nicholas of Lyra, Paul of Burgos, their Bible commentaries were the most common and, and most well-accepted in Europe. They were both converso Jews, and even Martin Luther was very well familiar with and often cited the commentaries written by Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos. So... All of Reformation Christianity was under the influence of these converso Jews. So they learned Christianity 
by the mouth of the Jews. Why, why would we believe that that Christianity is truly Christianity? I can go back in, in, into the, the New Testament and prove beyond all doubt through every portion of the New Testament, through every passage of Paul's epistles, that Christian identity is what they were teaching in the first century. I was going to say, the evidence for Christian identity, the, the best evidence for it is just to look at the Bible. Look at what it says in the Bible. I mean, that's proof that it goes all the way back. Um I was going to say, is there, is there any more evidence for the early church ac- accepting that in, in this interpretation of scripture, liturgies, or I- anything that they were using at the time? Well, well, first is the existence of the ancient Celtic church, what, which, which had a very different view of Christianity than Rome did, <coughs> which we only know through very scant documents, but their Christianity was certainly not Universalist Roman Christianity. Aside from that, and, and, and the true history of the spread of Christianity, which we ourselves have, have spoken of at length, especially concerning the British Isles. Um, just last week I did a program on the Book of Odes. The Book of Odes is found only in the Codex Alexandrinus. The Codex Alexandrinus is, um, the primary document through which we have what is called the Byzantine text type or the majority text, which has long been the text that's been depended upon by the Eastern Orthodox Church and, and the Roman Catholic Church. So this Codex Alexandrinus, this book of odes, is basically a liturgy that's peculiar to that church, that to that codex, I'm sorry, and, and every codex must have been produced by a church anyway. It, it's peculiar to that codex, but an examination of the book of odes, which I recently presented, proves that it's a Christian identity liturgy beyond all doubt just by the nature of the selections from Scripture chosen for the liturgy. It's all about the promises made in the Old Testament, and those same promises, the covenants and promises made with the ancient fathers, highlighted in the New Testament. The Book of Odes is one perfect example of the early church, of the true doctrine of the early church being a Christian identity doctrine. It has to be physical when it's talking about fathers and forefathers. It can't be something spiritual that it's, that it's discussing there. Um, well, what? Well, that's, the, I'm sorry, that's the importance of understanding the way words are used in secular Greek. Because when you read father in the, in, in the New Testament, it literally means a father. Or, a, or an ancestor. If you read seed in the New Testament, it is literally referring to offspring, to sperm, to descendants. There is no doubt. These apostles were not talking in code language that their assemblies would not be able to understand. And Paul even professed 
to be writing in plain language. They were speaking and writing in plain language that everyday people could understand, where father meant father, and seed meant seed, and son meant son, and nothing different. Talking about posterity, isn't it? Right, absolutely. Are there any... um? Any books that you could recommend people to, to, that they can get hold of or any particular podcasts that you can recommend to people to listen to if they're interested in learning more about this? Right. I really wouldn't recommend anybody else's books. I, I mean, if, if, if you think that you can screen out the, the, the problematic material, E. Raymond Capp's history books are fine. They're fine. His, um, his books on the Assyrian inscriptions and, and others of his books in the historical realm are, are fine because they are virtually void of dogma and, and he looks at history objectively, right? And, and there is some other material that's like that, but the, um, most of the books, the early books on Christian identity are full of British Israel dogma and, and British Israel, Christian identity is much older than British Israel, but Christian identity was hijacked and a corrupt version of Christianity was promoted and they still promote it in order to, as you said, justify the British Empire. Dominion theology which is embraced by British Israel, is a lie. Dominion theology, where we're supposed, where we, our race is supposed to rule over other races and keep, and, and, and teach them the law of God, that's a lie. That is not found in scripture. In scripture, we find the complete opposite expressed. And I would leave it at that. I would ad- ad- advise true nationalists to start a Christogenia. That, that's all I can promote in, in that aspect. The beginnings and ends series, four podcasts that I did with Don Fox. If you have six hours, listen to those four podcasts and you will get my entire, um, perspective on the world in through the lens of the Bible. Christian, it's a Christian perspective on the world and everything that's going around the world today, everything that's going on in the world today, in the perspective of the development of the history of our race, that that's my beginnings and end series. I talk about the beginnings, I talk about the ends. That's the point of the series, right? It, it's to present my wealth in Sean and summarize my explanations on the settlement of Europe from Mesopotamia and Palestine. And and in that light, I also have a, a whole series of historical essays, which shows from classical histories, as well as from scripture, the the settlement of Europe, how it really happened. And, and I can defend that from a, a relatively academic viewpoint, in, in spite of what about this archaeological discovery or what about that archaeological discovery? Those questions do not shake me. I'll uh, link, link to those in the article that, that accompanies this. I, mean, I, I began with org with the first site before I 
read any books and I, I have to agree with you there you, you do have to have a certain amount of discernment when you go when you go through them because a lot of them are, are they, they were still pro-jewish British, British Israel but even if you're reading Flavius Josephus you've, you've got to be discerning and uh, even with the, even with the source material as well but you've got to first have a good good grounding in Christian identity and the ideas involved in it have you got any other Interesting side projects that people might not be aware of that uh, that come from the same stable as Christa Guinea. Well, well, I have a lot of I, I have a lot of side projects, and some of them ha- have laid unattended for a long time, or, or are not completely developed. That because my life has become so cluttered with what with other things that are more important, but. I would say that my most popular side project is probably the Mein Kampf project, which is more of a um, hobby to me than it is a vocation. Um, historical revisionism and, and the Second World War and the Holocaust are of great interest to me. And I, I believe that I can, I, I can talk about all of the related topics intelligently but i'm not an authority on them uh, it's only a hobby for me so i, I have about a hundred podcasts there i did on nesta webster and communism in europe and and things like the sedition trials of, of roosevelt and and the jews in the roosevelt administration and there's a lot of things that on on there that would be of interest to um Students of of recent history, I believe, there's a lot of original documentation on a Mein Kampf project that you won't find anywhere else. That there's a U.S. government report on Bolshevism that's not posted anywhere else, at, at least before I posted it. And there's the Russian number one um, British intelligence reports on the Bolshevik Revolution. I was the first to post them online in, in their complete form with the complete text. That there's a lot of, um, that the entire text of Murphy's Mein Kampf, of course, there's, there's a lot of things on the Mein Kampf site that are actually internet firsts that, that, um, that, that's been an endeavor of mine. So that's like my biggest side project. That's a wealth of information over there. I also recommend people check out your Martin Luther series and the protocols of the learned elders of Satan. The historical stuff and uh, also especially just the recent series you did um, on two seed line uh, adding commentary to Clifford Emmerheiser's papers I think that's been a fantastic series as well well thank you very much for coming on today Bill I've really enjoyed this and I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy it too well thank you Sven and God bless praise Christ Yahweh bless <laughs> Tune into Radio Area.